I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show, how the pandemic changed education. Everybody who's involved in university leadership right now has to understand that the world has changed forever. COVID or not, students now expect that education is going to be much more responsive to them. Employers expect that the students are going to be much more uh, prepared for joining the workforce quickly. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. Our guest today is Jonathan Aberman. He's the Dean of the College of Business, Innovation, Leadership and Technology at Marymount University here in the Washington, D.C. area. And guess what? We talked about education because he knows wherever he speaks. He's been there a couple of years, so he is clearly seeing, as many of us are, how the pandemic changed higher education, maybe forever. He's talked about how the pandemic has made students expect all kinds of responsiveness with classes that are there when they need them and not when they don't. But also he's talked about how employers are now expecting folks out of colleges to have expertise in the place they wanna work. Not follow your passion crap, but knowing what it takes to be successful in a given arena. And that's what he's trying to do at Marymount, but it's tough because colleges don't change very rapidly. We also talked about a law degree. Jonathan holds a law degree and was a practicing lawyer. And I asked him, if you had to go back and do it again, would you have gotten a law degree? Or maybe if you wanted to do it today, would you get one? You'll have some interesting responses, I bet, to what he thinks about three years in law school. Lastly, Jonathan is a venture capitalist and had a very interesting, nimble, small venture capital firm here in Washington, D.C. What does he think about today? Guess what? Too much money swirling around too few companies. There's a bubble... Now, when it pops, nobody knows, but his advice is not to put everything in Bitcoin. Now, here's our conversation. Jonathan Aberman, the original host of this show. Jonathan is the Dean of the College of Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology, built at Marymount University here in the Washington, D.C. area. Jonathan, welcome back. Well, it's great to see you and see Tracy, and I love what you've done with the place, the, uh, <laughs> the curtains now. I mean, you know, I really like what you've done. It, it, the studio looks a lot different. Yes, a lot different. A lot different. It's the same for those listening in. But anyway, Jonathan originated this show a while ago. Pandemic uh, interrupted it, and now he is back as hopefully um, a constant guest on this show. But it's, we're going to spend some time together during this episode to talk about some of the things you're seeing going on mm. in both Washington, D.C., the region, government, and other elements of uh, both education, venture capital, et cetera. So let's start with education. Okay. You joined Marymount two years ago? Is that two right? Two years two academic ago, yes. years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as dean. And a lot has happened at the, at, the, at the school. And I would suggest, until you maybe correct me, that Marymount is one of the almost perfect examples of a higher education institution that is undergoing a lot of duress and opportunity all at the same time and that changing is almost mandated for places like 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 Marymount so I'm not asking you to wave the magic wand and say what you would change tomorrow but what are some things you've seen at Marymount since you arrived that have ended up making a difference at the school and what do you think is on the horizon for them well I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase canary in a coal mine yeah the the concept that you can learn a lot about uh, what's going on a mine by looking at uh, certain birds. Well, I think you can learn a lot about what's going on in the world of education by looking at universities like like Marymount because they're smaller and tuition-driven, so they have to be much more responsive to what's going on in the market. Got to pull back a bit. Uh, every university president that I know, everybody I know that's involved in running a university in this region will tell you the same thing, which is what the pandemic did 
is it really laid bare something that was going to be obvious for a while, which, number one, demographics, the the amount, the number of people who want to go to universities is falling off a cliff. Number two, and you know this and I from being in investors, the Internet ultimately touches every industry and causes it to have to modify itself significantly. And the Internet has come to education. And there was already a lot of trends around online education, the idea that you didn't have to be present to get educated, that you could learn from a professor that was far, far away. All those things have come together and created a perfect storm for every university. There are universities in town that have lost hundreds of millions of dollars over the last two years because of COVID. What I have learned and what I've applied coming into Marymount as I did is almost an accidental dean. You know, I, I didn't start out in my life to be involved in academia as an academic leader. I'm a guy that likes building businesses. Is a lot of things I've learned about working with startups and growing companies are very applicable when I came into Marymount. What I saw at Marymount was a very positive brand, a lot of really, really smart people that were very interested in providing what they know how to do to students locally and, and nationally. The challenge was to figure out how to be differentiated, how to have a value proposition like any business. And so what we've done is we focused on a couple of things that I think Marymount does very well. The first one is because Marymount's history, it started in 1950 as a women-focused university to get women skilled to succeed in the world, has become a university that is focused on people that want to do better for themselves. And we have a very strong focus on majority-minority demographics that, frankly, a lot of universities now have woken up to, if you give it the pun. But for Marymount, we've been a majority-minority university from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So it, that's really important right now in a situation where people are focused on equity. The second is we decided to take what in many other places, and I think just about every other place in town, are separate schools we merge them together. So yeah. we have a computer science school that's very excellent, and we have a business school that's really strong, and we also have an art school, design school, that has national reputation. Well, under my uh, uh, time there, what we've done is we've merged the three together. So we have a, a college now that's roughly half the university's students, more or less, that allows people to come on their graduate, undergraduate, and study, say, cybersecurity and business and get the same degree or study interior design and do marketing. And we let our students, both undergraduate and graduate, take modules and build their own degrees. So the answer ultimately is, I think, Mark, everybody who's involved in university leadership right now has to understand that, that the world has changed forever. COVID or not, students now expect that education is going to be much more responsive to them. Employers expect that the students are going to be much more uh, prepared for joining the workforce quickly. And uh, the, the world's changed. So unless you have a strong value proposition, I would argue, I think a lot of universities are going to have a hard time. And, and many canaries in the coal mine uh, will find themselves gasping for breath within a relatively short period so of time. It, it sounds like you're almost creating a Lego brick yeah. environment where, where the student or their family or whatever can can see a pathway to a career or a skill set that's desirable and then they they build the units together in the the menu that you guys provide listen I, many of your listeners are involved in government and technology and are familiar with concepts of agile you know agile development of right. software agile programs what we've done basically is applied the principles of agile to a university so that we took the entirety of our curriculum and said you know what what do you actually need to learn in order to have competence in cybersecurity. Yeah. And we reduced that into a module of four classes. That's academically rigorous. Or somebody wants to have skills in marketing or basic business skills or, you know, you name it. 
We just took it all and we modularized it. Mm -hmm. So effectively, you can you get a degree because everything gets built off degrees. You get an MBA, you get a master's in information technology, a doctorate in cybersecurity, a BA undergraduate in business. But we're allowing students to put, as you say, their Lego blocks in. Because ultimately, I think there are a couple of things that matter. One, employers no longer want to hire somebody just because they have a degree. Yeah. What they want is to hire people who can do something. And doing something is to have a, a core competency and then have the ancillary skills, right? Yep. And students understand that ultimately, if you're going to spend $50,000 a year on an education, it needs to be valuable in yeah. some way. Well, and let me ask you about that because I am still unconvinced that the pandemic's alter, altering of the experience from face-to-face, teacher at the front, whatever, to Zoom or video-based – I don't think people are learning. Certainly in K-12, we're seeing a lot of evidence there. Do you, do you think that the college experience may be forever kind of damaged a little bit with this new blended experience? I don't think it's that the college experience has been damaged. I think that what we are seeing is a decoupling of the experience of learning from the actual accomplishment of learning. In other words, online education itself is neither good nor bad. You know, we went from an uh, institution that had some online to being 100% online in a two-week period in the pandemic. Right. What I watched is I watched a bunch of professors who cared about their students adopt their teaching ad and uh, adapt it so that they were able to be effective. I have seen unbelievably excellent instructors who are completely asynchronous, meaning everything they do is by video and by chat, who are incredibly effective instructors. I've okay. seen instructors in the front of a classroom that are manifestly terrible. So. You first have to say there's going to be a part of the marketplace that really values efficiency of time, time shifting, and money. And, and they're going to gravitate towards online because that's the most efficient way to do it. If you're going to have students come face-to-face, -face, you need to provide a reason for them to come face-to-face. -face. Now, what we've seen and we saw from the lawsuits where students sued universities saying, wait a minute, I paid for X and all I had was online – what they're saying to universities is there's a value to me in being in a dorm. There's a value to me in seeing my colleagues. There's a value to me in meeting my professors. There's a value to me to the collegiate experience. Yeah. The learning. So universities, frankly, have to decide. Are they going to be really excellent at face-to-face? -face? Are they going to be excellent in a blend, a hybrid? Are they going to be excellent online? But what the Internet does, as you know, is the Internet punishes people who don't have clarity about their business model because the Internet disintermediates all the protections that allow lazy businesses to succeed. Wow. Well said. But I would argue, and we're talking once again with Jonathan Aberman, man about town, a wonderful Washingtonian, and the dean of the College of Business Innovation Leadership and Technology at Marymount University. Before we take a break, here's one question for you. I would argue colleges, or I guess a statement, and you respond to it, colleges are now either selling the experience of being there or information imparting in the most efficient, asynchronous way possible, which is the new video way. And there's a pretty bright, shining line in what business you're in. You think I'm right? I'm glad I'm going to have a break to think about it. <laughs> Our audience is an obvious one. Folks that care about Washington, D.C. and the environs. Folks that care about the Federal News Network. Folks that care about our nation. If you'd like to have your message heard by that kind of audience, be sure to contact us for sponsorship opportunities. You can email me directly at walsh at AOL.com. That's W-A-L-S-H at AOL.com. Welcome back. 
back to What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh, and joining us today, Jonathan Aberman. Jonathan's the Dean of the College of Business Innovation, Leadership and Technology at Marymount University here in Washington, D.C. Also a very experienced venture capitalist, investor, public-private partnership executive, and really uh, someone with a law degree. And lastly, if not leastly, a musician. Let's hop on that just for one second. So our listeners care about Washington, D.C., as do you and I. Okay. How's the music scene in Washington, D.C.? You know, I'm going to reveal a little bit of my age, but I I think that uh, what I'll tell you is I think the music scene in D.C. has been really affected by COVID, obviously, and a lot of shows aren't happening. A lot of clubs aren't open or trying to reopen. I I think it's been very hard for the industry generally. Right. Um, Before COVID, you know, I think in a lot of ways, the city suffers from a lot of the same things. So I'm sure you've touched this on other parts of your show, or you will. There's a lot of segmentation in different parts of the economy. You know, you can be in D.C. and downtown D.C., and your life experience is very different than if you're living in McLean. Uh, your experience working in the government contract industry is very different than, say, working in the tech industry and so forth. Well, the music industry here has a, a long history of, uh, you know, innovation, go-go, jazz was two examples. Uh, so we have a very strong music uh, heritage here. I, I would say that uh, what you've seen over the last number of years, however, is you haven't seen enough fiber in the industry to really drive things. But, you know, the reality here is that there's some really excellent musicians and it's a town where you can hear really good live music. A lot of the national acts come here. We have a good set of venues. So I would say the music scene is terrific if you want to listen to national acts. I think if you're trying to make a career as a musician, this is not where you would, you would do it. You'd go to Nashville, you'd go to New York, you'd go to LA, but that's true for most parts of the country. Yeah. Well, we did a little diversion there. Forgive me. I just had to go there because I said you and music and I've seen Oh, I was you. hoping you forgot about the question no, before I the break. No, I did not forget about the question. Oh, okay. We're going to return to the question we asked before the break, which All is, right. I claim there's a bright shining line between two, two business models, education at the higher, higher education, i.e. college, advanced degrees, with the experiential level on campus at a, at a college or a university versus Imparting information in whatever is the most efficient and cheap way possible, i.e. video, internet, asynchronous, whatever. And those two business models are going to separate perhaps forever in certification, badges, and degrees. Do you agree? Uh, yes and no, which I'm sure is the response you wanted since you asked me the question. It is not the response, but However, so here's what I, th- I agree with. I agree with you that there is a bifurcation now in many people's minds between education through efficiency, education as an efficiency and education as an experience. And that is certainly one way for people to look at things. Uh, I think that you need to pull back a bit and you have to and should ask the question, why do people get educated? And people get educated narrowly because they, they want to have a technical skill so they can get a job. But people also get educated to learn how to think because ultimately a lot of uh, the jobs that really are most rewarding are jobs that require multidisciplinary competencies and require critical analysis, analytical reasoning, creativity. And those are generally not things that you can teach in a 10-week period of time. You know, teaching somebody how to think. You can teach how to think. And I believe also that education has a very strong role in socialization of citizens. And let's face it, that's one of the reasons why universities are politicized, because the way that students are socialized is a, a way that some disagree with. But the reality is that 
education, undergraduate, graduate, but also K-12 is the primary way that people become citizens and learn, around the, learn about the society they live in. So it's hard to do that level of thinking, that level of creativity through uh, a very structured, you need to know X. So, you know, the reality is, is that I believe that our society is always going to want to have both. But the thing that I disagree with you on is I don't think it's, it's lower level, higher level. You know, for example, we have certificates to go back to Marymount for the moment where somebody can come in and do a four-credit graduate certificate in, say, cybersecurity. Those are – it's technically focused, but, yep. it's, but it's teaching you how to think. So ultimately, I think that – forgive the pun – that universities, high schools, kindergarten, and so forth really just have to understand that as technology advances, as artificial intelligence basically takes more and more tasks away from humans – What's going to be left is our creativity and our ability to, to draw connections and think. And Well, let, let yeah. me stop there because you got a degree in Europe, correct? A couple, yeah. Yeah. Um, can you compare that? Now, this is a, a few years ago, with all due respect. Thank you. Can you, you compare for the that European out. higher education marketplace to ours? Are they basically now becoming the same? Uh, well, certainly European observers would, would say that there's some similarities. I think what you're getting at is that, uh, you know, because I went to uh, – Places that focused on the tutorial model. Right. You know, I, when you're going to a place like Cambridge or the, or the LSC, their economic model is structured around students go to lectures if they want, but all teaching actually occurs in single individual instructions with professors one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Yeah. You can afford to do that as a society if you are very exclusive. And I'm not going to lie, I, I benefited enormously from a very exclusive education. I was very fortunate to get it and, and be able to afford to go. And as a result, I think I got an education that prepared me to be, as you call it, the man about town that I am, and I'm very thankful for it. As an educator, what I'm most concerned about is how do I make sure that what I benefited from isn't just a preserve of the privileged? And that's why I went to Marymount, frankly. Hence the minority majority. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's go to the other facet of your business that you and I talk a lot about, which is the venture capital industry, innovation, mm. business startups and stuff, which I know is part of the title of the what you're doing at Marymount sure. and what you and your colleagues are. Mm. Um, if you could go back 10 years, could you have predicted where the venture capital industry is in general and perhaps here in the D.C. market? So 10 years or so ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, I was actually working with the Obama administration on this topic. Yeah. And I raised the concern at the time that the venture industry was consolidated into a smaller and smaller number of hands, and it was becoming more and more like private equity and hedge funds, yeah. where it was all about financial return and not really about company building. Yes. And I said that, you know, the, that somebody needed to address this issue of putting money in the hands of smaller funds and, and angels so that they could help start companies. And I think that um, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I, I think I would have told you that I would have expected the venture capital industry to turn around and change and become more like what it was when it started, which was small 20, 30, $50 million funds run by experienced people, financing garage inventors. What's happened instead, and I wouldn't have predicted this, was that the the overall financialization of our society, which causes it and is resulted in hedge funds and private equity and VC funds changing, has now dribbled out and spread downward. So that instead of the venture capital industry sort of changing, what's happened is money has sort of sort of come into the early stages just in new forms. So we see hedge funds now investing directly in companies, corporations investing directly in companies. I mean, we are now seeing historic levels of investment in startups not coming from venture capital funds. Right. But the other thing that's happening is we're seeing more 
angel funds, you know, wealthy people putting together funds of their own. And we're seeing the emergence of equity focused funds, new fund managers like Zeal Capital here in town and others that are specifically focused on issues of equity. So the marketplace, I think, is very much a bubble right now. I don't think in my career I've ever seen as much money available for companies that have reached the point of liftoff that are run by experienced people. It's spectacular. But if you're inexperienced or if you're not from a demographic that the VC industry and private equity are are familiar with, it's a dickens of a time raising money right now. In other words, the same uh, disequilibrium we see in other parts of our society is playing out big time in venture right now. And it's almost, to your point, it's almost magnified by so much money sloshing around what seems to be so few opportunities. The valuations of some of these companies that – when you and I started investing as venture capitalists, we would, I think, laughed at some of these companies and their business models, but they're they're valued at billions and billions of dollars. Listen, Am I missing something, brother? No, you're not. This is this is a gravimetric pressure of money. Yeah. This is what happened in 1999, 2000, when a lot of money went into the internet because everybody was convinced that the world was changing forever. Now what we have is a gravimetric pressure of money because the Fed decided two years ago or 18 months ago to keep the United States and the world economy from crashing into a depression, which is what would have happened as a result of lockdown with COVID. Make no mistake, these guys read their economic history and knew in 2008 and recently that if they did what the Fed did in 33, which was cut the money supply, we would have a depression. Yeah. So we now have, bluntly, we have too much money in the financial services world, which is why Bitcoin goes through the roof, why the stock market is where it is. It's just it's supply and demand. Yeah. How how well will we reduce the size of the balloon? Because you and I lived through 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. I'll start to sob here in a minute thinking mm-hmm. about it. But that was a reduction of everything kind of all at once, at least in the tech sector. I, I should be a, a lot more focused on that. How, how how well will we reduce the pressure of this balloon? Or do you think we're headed to another 2001, 2002? Well, you know, 2001... 2002 was uh, basically a example of a financial mania that you see is a pretty recurrent pattern. You know, we saw what happened in 2001-2002 was a particular asset class, which had been very hot, startups, became very unhot very quickly, and a lot of people pulled their money out. We saw the same thing with uh, we saw the same thing with third world debt uh, in 2007-2008, mortgage-backed securities 2007-2008 go back to the late 80s, junk bonds. We yep. do this. This is what our economy does. The big difference, Mark, and what people are truly worried about right now is is the entire economy is what a trader would say, risk on. There's so much money chasing deals right now. What happens if there's a systemic change? What happens if the Biden uh, Democrat stimulus package uh, infrastructure, the big one, not the little one, what happens if that doesn't pass? What happens if the Fed starts raising interest rates? And uh, I think that the chances that we have a calm sort of climbing back down to earth, much more likely, in my opinion, is uh, stagflation. Uh, just to be honest with you, that, yeah. that what we have uh, I slightly concur. higher. I, I just think that uh, people right now should be investing based upon, are you creating something that has inherent value that will have value five or 10 years from now? And if the answer is you're trying to chase the bubble, take a deep breath, because I think the bubble is largely passed. We're talking with Jonathan Aberman, the originator of this show. It's called What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Really happy to have him in the studio with us. Jonathan, you have a law degree amongst many other wonderful degrees. Um, If a 22-year-old or 25-year-old or 30-year-old man or woman is listening to this show, and hopefully they are and thinking about 
what can enhance their career. Would you advise law school to them? Uh, I think the first thing I would advise anybody, and I do all the time, is if you're 22, 23, 24, or even older, the, the most important thing is to try to figure out what it is that makes you happy. I know this sounds trite, but, you know, you can work really, really Please hard. don't say follow your passion. That's all no, I ask. but it's true that ultimately if you're doing something that you fundamentally are happy about doing, you work a lot harder. The worst thing I've ever seen is people who do a degree and get a qualification. I don't care whether it's law, nursing, you know, whatever – and then they hate the job, but they do it because they think, well, if I get this degree, I'll make a living. Mm -hmm. The most important thing is to ultimately develop competencies that interest you. So, for example, if you really like computers, then then double down on that. If you really like music, double down on that. If you really like people, double down on that. So should somebody go to law school? Somebody should go to law school, honestly, if they think they would like being a consigliere and ultimately have a role where they're never actually responsible for the final answer, but they're responsible for finding the ways to get somebody there. If that's not something that interests them or if they don't want to be in a situation where they're in a courtroom fighting all the time, then they ought to think, well, what do I like doing? Maybe they're better off doing an, an MBA. Maybe they're better off doing uh, a degree in technology. Maybe they're better off going and tending bar for a while and thinking it through. But I would never tell somebody to do any degree uh, or join a profession because they're doing it to make money because you can't predict that. Well, we certainly would agree that the economics of the law firm business have changed since you went to law school. Well, I think that what's happened, and I talked about the Internet earlier, the Internet in a lot of ways came for the legal industry 20, 30 years ago, exactly. but it came in a different way, and it, yeah. was, it wasn't as obvious. It commoditized a lot of things that lawyers used to make lots of money for, and the net result was that only the law firms that really, really were special sort of pulled away and became incredibly profitable. And the ones that weren't special either, well, a lot of them went out of business. And funnily enough, just to turn full circle as we complete our time together, having been a managing partner of a couple of law firms and now being a dean, I can tell you that it's exactly the same fact pattern. <laughs> it's exactly the same. It's, it's, it's the world has now come, the Grim Reaper has now come to a new industry yep. and saying, guess what? You need to be special. Otherwise, you will not be able to benefit from geographic limitations. Yeah. Get ready. And, um, you know, it's a scary thing for people who are used to doing the same thing. But change is scary. Yeah. You know, well, geographic limitations and definitions. I, I am following the newspaper business a lot now. And that's the exact same model. They, they mm -hmm. no longer have geographic limitations or they no longer have geographic protection. That's right. So that they have now they're now facing e e an economic reality, which is almost fatal for most of them. But I'll tell you what, uh, as a leader, you can be a leader and you can change and work through change if you have people that want to change. Yep. And I'm really fortunate in that the folks at Marymount uh, really wanted to win. And they want to win every day and they want to serve their students, serve the community. And it's a lot easier to come in as an outsider with that kind of viewpoint when you have people that want to move things forward. Marymount University is a great participant in the educational community here in Washington, D.C. The show is What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We are joined by the originator of that show, Jonathan Aberman. Jonathan, as always, it's been great to chat with you today. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening, and I hope that our show continues to give you some enlightenment, some information, some actionable intelligence, and hopefully some enthusiasm about what works in Washington, D.C. So once again, thanks for listening. Our executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Our content intern is Anna DeGraff. And the theme music is performed by the Aberman Brothers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.